0: The atheist blogger, James Lindsay, wrote a blog in 2014 entitled, Why I Really Don't Care If Jesus Existed or Not. I don't anticipate that most of us in this audience are atheists, Um, so so please um, bear with me as I I use his little illustration uh, to transition into God's Word. But He said this, I care about whether or not Jesus existed in a way similar to whether or not Socrates existed, which is to say that it has absolutely no bearing on my day-to-day or even academic existence to find out a positive or negative answer to that question. That is, it's trivia. Doesn't matter. Now, we're not atheists, and so we're not approaching the questions of God's word in the same way, but still, we have cultural and experiential biases that make uh, a, a Christian practice or a, a doctrine more important to one of us than maybe the other. One might think that the foot washing is very, very important to their belief and their spiritual experience. My Aunt Ruth is is like that. She really cares about that experiential um, activity. And yet others might see it as, uh, you know, just nothing more than a formality of religion. They do it because everybody else does it. Some might see the... The doctrine of the Trinity is central to their belief in God, and, and others might look at it as a, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter to them whether God's three persons in one or one person's in three or whatever the other options might be. It's just not something that has really come up to significance in their life. And the topic we're talking about today, a promise, a lamb, so what? is uh, is one of these subjects. It, and we're going to dive into the covenants, these promises God has made. And to some of us, they're of great significance. I'm sure some of you have read M.L. Andreasen's book uh, about the cross and its shadow, or uh, the, the newer book about um, uh, in granite or ingrained. And and these books are deep, and they go into all kinds of details, and we're not going to do that today. but But to some of you, it's really significant, and to others of you, it's not something that's really crossed your mind. And so as I was... Um, exploring. Um, you know, we're in this Village Windows series, and to, last week, Pastor Jeff talked about the cross uh, from the, the window in the chapel. And this week, I get to talk about the lamb and the rainbow. And the rainbow apparently is, is less obvious than the other elements in that window, but it's there, all the colors. And uh, and so I I was researching this topic, and I was exploring what exactly are these promises. And I like the history, it's fun, but I I had to ask myself, so what? I mean, God made a promise to Adam and Eve, God made a promise to Noah, God made a promise to Abram, God made a promise to Israel and to David, but so what? What value does that have in my own personal experience, in my day-to-day life as a Christian? Or is it merely historical trivia? As we dive into these, uh, these simple stories, they're not really complex when you just look at the big picture, I'd like you to ask that question. So what? What value does this have for you? What, what does this mean for you? And at the end, I'm going to make a conclusion. I've, I've got some ideas of what it means, but I want you to to see this as an introductory. Just open up more of these texts uh, as as I've introduced them to you today. Maybe go back and write, jot them down, and go back and open up your Bible and say, "What does this mean for me?" And, and really engage with this question, because I think it's ultimately about who God is in our lives. Now the Bible isn't a list of doctrines or dogmas. It's not set out as a a spreadsheet or a diagram or some, uh, you know, graphical chart. It doesn't have vision statements about God. It's primarily a storybook. And so as we look at the stories, we see how God related to the people in Abraham's time before the flood, and then the flood, and then I'm sorry, that's Adam, not Abraham. And then Abraham's time, and then all the way down through history. And as we do this, we start to uncover bits and pieces about who God is, the character of God. And uh, if you've been reading your Sabbath school lesson about how uh, Revelation is progressive, um, what we read in, in the beginning of the Bible is added to and, and developed more as we read through the rest of the Bible. So we're going to do that today. And... Uh, and we're gonna kind of get the highlights of these promises and figure out what's it mean, so what. At the beginning of the Bible, we read the story about how God created this beautiful world full of potential and goodness, and then he asked man to step into a partnership with him, uh, a relationship, but a partnership where they would together bring out more goodness as they filled the earth. But Adam and Eve chose not to partner with God ultimately they decided that they would go about doing the management of the earth on their own. And instead of this partnership, they had broken relationship. And this is what the Bible um, uses as a kind of uh, a metaphor uh, for the reason why um, all throughout history, we've had these, this broken earth filled with um, injustice and, um, and and evil and death and corruption. And it's, it's not just Adam and Eve that broke this relationship. Every single one of us, the Bible says, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all have broken this relationship. So uh, with, with that in mind, this first promise is given—well, uh, I, before I, I say that, there's, there's this idea of a covenant, these promises. And so all mankind has a broken relationship with God, so God reestablishes a relationship with smaller groups of people. Uh, And and with that relationship, with that covenant promise with them, he intends that the blessing of that promise will extend to all the world. And so with that in mind, let's turn to Genesis chapter 3, and we'll start with the first promise that's made. It's a curse, actually, but a promise is built in. And you find it in Genesis 3, 14 to 15, where God, talking to Satan, says, "'Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go.'" (laughs) and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So this promise, its as I said, it's tucked away inside a curse, but it's really obvious, right? The promise is to Satan that he's going to be crushed. The end is certain. God is 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 putting this out there as his promise to all mankind and and it's not just to Adam and Eve um, It's really talking to all the world Now when God makes a promise he extends his hand in a promise But then he invites us on the other side to reach out and grasp his hand in a commitment And that kind of relationship is exists in every covenant that God is making but here we don't see it in the text Instead, we see the results of the commitment God has asked them to make. Genesis chapter 3:21 adds, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And then in chapter 4, we find uh, Abel offering a sacrifice of a lamb. And so we see that there's a request God has made. He's extended a promise, I'm going to crush the serpent's head, but he's invited them to come into a commitment, and he's introduced a symbol of that promise, the lamb. And so all Adam and and his descendants needed to do was to offer a sacrifice and remember this promise, and the rest was up to God. Uh, Then in uh, this, when you look at these stories, you see this, the lamb is really consistent, and the lamb that provided the clothes for Adam and Eve that Abel offered, and, and all the way down from Adam to Noah to Abraham and Moses and through the strings of prophets and priests and all the way down to Jesus himself, every one of these lambs would communicate this promise to each other, to the, the Israelites or to the families that they were engaged with or to the world. This, this lamb was the ultimate symbol that God had made a promise and that we were joining him in that covenant relationship. The lamb that provided, I'm sorry, the, the, this lamb is then introduced another time as uh, 1,600 years passes, there's a, a flood that's about to happen. God is hanging around earth and seeing all the hearts of men are only evil continually. And, and he, he says, in order for me to establish this, this uh, promise, in order for it to actually occur, I need to make another promise, another agreement. And so in Genesis chapter 6, verse 18, we read about the, the covenant God makes with Noah. And God asks Noah something new. It says, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. In order for God to fulfill this promise of saving Noah and ultimately fulfilling his promise to Adam and Eve, they had to build the ark and then go into the ark, and then after the flood was over, they came out of the ark, and the very first thing they did was what? They offered a sacrifice, and the lamb came back into the picture. And it's in this context that God adds detail to his promise to Noah and and ultimately to all mankind. It's Genesis 15, um, verse, I'm sorry, uh, Genesis chapter 9, verse 12 through 15. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is set in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all people." Now, at first glance, this promise seems very specific about a flood. It's a promise given to Noah, and and God says, I'm not going to do this again. But read between the colors of that rainbow, and I think what you'll see is that God is making a promise to all mankind. He's saying, the promise I made to Adam and Eve at the beginning, that I would crush the serpent's head, and the promise that I then made to Noah, that I would save his family, and now the promise that I'm not going to to destroy the earth again, is is all the same. I commit to making this happen at any cost. I'm not going to destroy the earth again until my promises are fulfilled. I think that's fair to get out of that, uh, that text. It's, it's not just to, Adam, uh, to Noah, it's to the whole world that God is making this promise. Now, Noah's descendants, they, they did not c- keep the commitments to the covenant. They, they were really messed up people. And you, you can find the rebellion at the Tower of Babel. Um, and so one of Noah's great-great-grandsons, uh, Abram, gets a, a, a message from God. God stops him in Genesis 12one through 3, and says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And this promise says that, that Abraham and his family would end up blessing the whole world. And in return, what God was asking for him to do is to just leave his country and go to a new place that God would show him. The promise of God was a big deal. The commitment was possible. It was very doable for Abram to make a big leap of faith. But still, it was doable. He could move to a new country. And so he moves to the new country and he's starting to question, because he's really old, apparently, for having kids anyway, like 90-something years old, and he says, God, is this really going to happen? Are you going to fulfill your promises? And I think some of us wonder about that, too. Uh, Does God really fulfill his promises? And so, responding to Abram, God repeated his promise in Genesis 15, and he said this, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess, right? So he reminds him of the first promise that he gave to him, to come out and he'd make him a blessing to all people. But then he he says, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away, and as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Uh, skip forward to verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, "To your offspring, I give this land." Now, There's more that he says, but that's the big, uh, the, the big part of the promise. So we'll stop there. And like Noah's promise. This one seems very focused. This is a promise to Abraham and his children, and it's about his, this land that's around him. That, that's the extent of what the promise seems. But it's clear because he said, I'm the God who brought you out of the land of Ur, that God is connecting this promise of possessing the land with, and, and also he, in the same passage he talks about this, the kids being as numerous as the stars of heaven. But he's connecting that with the idea that through them, Abraham and his kids, all the nations of the world would be blessed. All right, so this is, a, is an interesting context for this uh, passage, and I, I think God is making a really big point in this promise because he asks Abram to enter a type of covenant that was common in his day. In Abram's day, there, there weren't big nations. They were city-states, so this city would be somewhat small and they would form a militia and they would protect the farming community right around their, their city. This city over here might be big and, uh, and they would have a larger army. And so the smaller city state, afraid that, uh, that they might get taken over by some other city and their, and their stuff looted, they would just, basically they'd burn the city and go back to their own home. Uh, and, and so afraid of that, they would ask the larger city nearby could we have uh, some arrangement, agree, an agreement? And so the larger city would set the terms and, uh, and it usually would include that they would protect the smaller city and the smaller city would come and protect them when they were uh, attacked in exchange for the smaller city giving the larger city a tax every year. Well, the leaders of the cities would come together and, and they would form uh, an agreement. They'd write it on something and, and then they would lay out these animals, cut them into and the, the leader of the smaller city would then walk through these animal parts. And as he did that, he, he would make this agreement that if he broke the promise, if he broke the covenant the, and, and didn't do what was required, then he would be uh, cut in two like these animals. But Abram's story is a little different. God, he invites Abram into this kind of covenant. He asks Abram to divide these animals, but then the, the verse says that the smoking pot and burning oven um, went through these, these animals. God himself, these are symbols for God. So God himself walks through these animals, and, and he's essentially saying, I make you this promise, and and, and, then, and then he takes Abram's side, and he says, if you fail, I will be torn asunder. This, this is a fantastic promise, and, and something that we just, I don't think we, they'd grasped up, to, up until that time, the significance of God's determination to make sure this was going to happen, that these promises were going to be fulfilled. Now, some of the people think that the covenant, the old covenant, is a legalistic covenant. It's based on our promises, we would say, um, you think of Israel at Mount Sinai, and God said all these commandments, and the people said, all that the Lord has said, we will do. And of course they didn't. Right, right away they didn't. Um, and, uh, and so we look at this old covenant as, as one that was based on our promise, and, uh, and the new covenant as one that's based on God's promise. But I'd like to suggest that that's, that's never been the case. From the very beginning, the covenant is based on God's promise, and he staked his life on it. But the old covenant, what Paul tells us, and we'll come back to it in a little bit. But what Paul tells us is that the old covenant is based on the sacrifice of lambs, and then we'll look in a minute about what the new covenant is based on. If you look at the the stories in Judges, one after the other, you see that um, I'm not in, not in Judges, but in in uh, uh, the the Pentateuch, um, Genesis throughout, you, you'll see that Abraham and then Jacob, who God reiterated his promise to, um, and and all of their kids were pretty messed up. I mean, there was deceit and lying, there was attempted murder, there was actual murder, there was genocide in the mix, there was adultery, there's terrible things that are listed in this this history of these people. And so, again and again, they fail to ratify their side of the covenant and to, com, uh, to com, comete, complete their commitments. So years go by, and God is bringing Israel back out of Egypt, and he makes another covenant with him. And this one's really cool. It adds to the picture. You can find it in Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is like God is telling them, you're going to be a nation of spiritual leaders. God wasn't interested in the Levites being priests. He wanted all of Israel to be priests. And through their impact of spiritually leading the world, the covenant relationship, that partnership that God had with Adam and Eve before sin would be restored. And he makes this promise to them. But it seems to some of us as we read that, that God is putting a big burden on the... the, country of Israel, right? It's like hard for them to do. He says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you'll be my treasured possession. And we're like, well, they're going to fail at that. Yeah, they, they will. Uh, but, but keep in mind that this wasn't a big, hard thing. Uh, in in uh, Adam and Eve's case, the commitment was to perform sacrifices to remember the promise that God had made. The commitment that Noah made was to build and then enter the ark. Not, not really hard things. Abram, his commitment was to leave uh, his um, place in Ur and go to a new land, and then to circumcise his kids. How hard are these commitments that God is asking them to make? Not hard, basically, he's just like, you know what? I make this big promise, I've got lots of power, and I just want you to come alongside. Can you do that? Can, can you come with me? And that's all he's asking. I mean, there's some details in there, but that's the big idea of what he's asking. But this promise here, it reiterates everything that god said to abram he said that he would bring them out he bring him out of ur and come to this new land it says that he'd bless all the nations through his children and now he's saying to the israelites you're the children and i'm blessing the world through you you're a nation of priests but you only have to read the stories of the judges to find out that israel failed and failed and failed again they didn't even do the simple thing of staying with god they, uh, they kept running away to some other god, to some other um, idol. And over and over again, God drew the people back to him through his prophets and his judges until the age of the kings rolled around and David was set up on the throne. Now David, he put a lot of hard work in and they got victory over their enemies, there was peace, and he started to look around. He, he built up Jerusalem, he built up his house, uh, he had a nice palace, and then he looked at God's house. And for 400 years, uh, this, this tent was now moth-eaten, and it, it needed to be replaced. And so he said, I want to rebuild, uh, build a temple for God. But through Nathan, God told him, no, your son will. And you can read about it, Second Samuel 7. And God makes him this really fantastic promise. When your days, uh, this is verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Forever. Now, like the last couple, this could be misconstrued as a very focused promise. He's going to give David a throne and, and his son will build a temple. But then, that last part of the verse, verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. There is no king that has reigned forever, but God's throne will reign forever. This is a promise of the Messiah. This is a promise of the Lamb, Jesus, who will set up his throne. And, and so God is extending a promise to David that he made to Adam and Eve. He's saying, The Messiah is going to come. The end of sin will happen. I'm going to, I've really staked my life on it. David and his kids, really messed up crowd. They did not keep the covenant. They failed and failed and failed again, and so about the time that they are going to Babylon, Jeremiah writes something, and I think God was looking forward to when they would come back, because remember the, the people at Jesus' time? They had reacted to this failure to keep God's covenant, and they made sure, with lots of laws and lots of details, that they would, they would keep this covenant, that they would, it was not going to be their fault that, uh, that God didn't fulfill his promise. And so God He's, I think, anticipating this. He writes uh, through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And then while they're actually in Babylon, God feels it important to say it again. And so Ezekiel adds some details to this idea of putting the law in their hearts. And I'm gonna read a passage, a chunk from 22 to 28, so follow along with me if you've got your your Bible in front of you. This is, uh, I think the whole thing needs to be read in its context. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. Read into this, You've broken your commitments, but for the sake of my promise, I'm gonna do something. This is what he's saying, reiterating this. Um, Verse 23, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations, and gather you from all the countries, and bring you into your own land. Oh, isn't that the promise he gave to Abram? And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is kind of like the promise he made to Israel, that they would all be a nation of priests to the world. And verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules, you shall dwell in the land that I have gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. No, notice how God-centric this statement is. God is saying, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. It's his promise, and he's staked his life on it, and he's, he's promising it's going to happen. Now this isn't a new covenant, even though it says it's new. It's the same covenant that they've been having all along. Uh, but yet God He He wants to renew this covenant with Him and let them know that it's for them. And it's and it's gonna happen. Paul in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 to 28, which you should read in its entirety, but I'll just summarize. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 to 28, he looks at this idea of the covenant, and he says that it's like a will. Now, when does a will begin? It begins when the the person who makes the will dies. It it doesn't start before that. It starts when they're dead. And, And then what they own is passed on. And so Paul is saying these covenants are a promise, a promise that God is going to give his life. And so the new covenant, different from the old, which was established by killing a lamb, a symbol of God's promise, the new covenant is made from better promises, Paul says, because it's based on the very life of God. And there on the throne, like uh, the, not the throne, the cross, <laughs> the, the picture of the animals torn in two is portrayed through Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then saying, it is finished. These, these big statements of, of Jesus um, illustrate what God was willing to go through to, to ratify this covenant, and to make sure it would happen. He's torn asunder, Jesus, from the Father and the Spirit. Praise God, Jesus was raised from the dead. But it's, it, Jesus is this, this lamb, the lamb in the garden that provided its skin for clothes for Adam and Eve. That represented Jesus. The lamb that Noah sacrificed after the flood symbolized Jesus. The lambs that Abraham and Jacob offered each time they moved their family throughout the promised land, they all represented Jesus. The lambs that Moses sacrificed when God gave Israel the Ten Commandments and the promise that he would make them a nation of priests all represented Jesus. He's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world and for all eternity. The the promise that um, happened when Jesus that was ratified, I should say, when Jesus died on the cross uh, Wasn't yet fulfilled And it's not yet fulfilled today So we still look forward To the promises of God Now, I ask you this question So what? So what that Abraham had a promise and, and, and David had a promise And Israel had a promise And Noah had a promise And Adam and Eve had a promise They're ancient, literally very, very ancient history 5,000 years, 6,000 years ago God made promises to people What's that got to do with me? So here's, here's my thoughts. The God that made these promises is a God that can be trusted. He was so consistent throughout all of human history. He staked his life on fulfilling these promises. Do you know anyone that's as committed to being in a relationship with you? Do you know anyone that loves you as much? Because God is faithful and consistent and Loving, I don't have to live in doubt and fear. Like, uh, I, I don't have to have the, the putrid self-righteousness that suggests I could do it on my own, or, or the despondent self-pity that says, it'll never happen, it, it must not be meant for me. I can lean on Jesus He's promised. He's given his life, and I can lean on that. Philippians 1, 6, Paul says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. We have no doubt. We we need to have no doubt that God will fulfill his promise, and not just to the world, but to me. Over the years, I've counseled with dozens of young people that uh, struggle with this idea. They, they see their own life, and they see, I failed, I failed, I failed. How could, how could this work? I'm not growing as a Christian. I'm, I'm failing as a Christian. Uh, I, but when I think of these, these young people that fear that the ugliness of their heart is too ugly for God, I think of Abraham, struggling with trust, committing adultery, and much more. And still, God made a promise to him. I think of David, a murderer, an adulterer, and still God made him promises, and he kept them. Noah, a drunkard, and still God made him promises, and he kept them. The promises weren't contingent on them. They were going to fail. They were Contingent not on their own fulfillment of those commitments, but on the Lamb of God, Jesus. He comes down as the new Adam. He comes as the, the redeemer from the great apocalypse, like Noah's flood. He comes as the father of all the living, as Abraham would be. He comes down as the, um, the, the, the peak or pinnacle of Israelitism. Um, he comes down as the lion of of the tribe of Judah, the king in the line of David. He comes down and he takes the place of all of these people that have made commitments to God, and he fulfills them. Where we failed, Jesus fulfills. And so he ratifies it with his own blood, and he fulfills it with his own commitments. Jesus, Paul tells us, uh, he's talking to the the Corinthians, these Gentiles that have no stake in the promise of the Israelites. Well, at least the Israelites kind of thought so at the time. And Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 1.20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. All the promises of God find their yes. That's why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. Have you ever used the word amen to end a prayer? What you're saying is what Paul is saying. Amen. I believe God will commit, fulfill that promise. Amen, that promise is for me. Isn't that cool? Well, now you know what amen means. You can say it more often if you'd like to in this church. (laughs) I think knowing this makes me relieved. I find my center in Christ because I know his promise is for me. And like the angels who sang the praises to the lamb as Jesus entered heaven after his resurrection, I think we can worship and praise the lamb too. Read Revelation 5 with me again. We read it for a scripture, but I'll just reference back to it. Um, This is Jesus. He's just been resurrected, and he's rising, or he goes to heaven, and he enters the heavenly sanctuary, and all the creatures of heaven are around him, and they say, this is uh, the passage, it says, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, and which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp with golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. And from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is the same promise he made to Israel. Now, through the, the creatures in heaven, they're singing praises to Jesus, and they're pointing to you and to me, the, the non-Jews, the non-Israelites, and they're saying, every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, you have brought them to yourself. you fulfilled your promise. And, and you've made them a nation of priests a nation of spiritual leaders. You see, I think through Christ, every promise is yes and amen, and every commitment is ours as well. We have the opportunity to join the Israelites in doing what they failed to do and take the gospel to the world. Matthew 24 talks about that. We have the opportunity um, to join with Adam and Noah and Abraham and Israel and David and, and look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and glory in him and in his sacrifice. These, these commitments that God called them to make, we can join to, with as well. Now that we're included in these promises, we have this fantastic opportunity to worship. Revelation 21 ends all of these promises. It's the very end, all of sin is done, God has crushed the head of the serpent, and the promise uh, has been fulfilled. And, and it reads in Revelation 21:23 to 24. The city, New Jerusalem, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Wasn't that the promise he made in Jeremiah 31? That you wouldn't have to tell your neighbor about God or your brother because everyone would know the, the Lord. And so now all nations of the earth bring their glory, their praise, their worship, to the new Jerusalem, because they all know Jesus. John saw the ultimate fulfillment of all of God's promises. The lamb, the symbol of this covenant promise, is the center and the glory of the new Jerusalem. But we don't yet have the fulfillment in our, in our lives today. Until those promises are fulfilled, our everyday life is impacted by these covenants through our daily surrender to God and through participating in that covenant commitment of taking the gospel to the world. And I believe that this kind of life is an expression of our worship. Like the the creatures in heaven worshiping Jesus after he came to heaven, we can worship Jesus through our everyday life. I'm afraid some of us look at worship as an experience you have once a week or a couple times a week and it's performed on the stage. This is the worship service, right? This is a corporate worship and it's definitely part of that picture, but worship is part of your everyday existence. Everything you do in life is connected to your worship of God. And so we have the opportunity to, um, in our daily walk with Him, to worship Him and to glory in Him and to praise Him. And we can do that by singing, I don't care if you have a good voice or not, you can sing, God loves it. Um, You can do it through prayer. You can do it through praises. You can do it through service to others. You can do it in public and you can do it in private. But God wants you to embrace him and say, you're worthy. Worthy is the lamb. Give glory and honor and praise to God for his promises, for making you an heir to them. Give God your very life because that's exactly what he gave you. Will you bow yourself before God today and give Him your life? Will you worship Him for His faithfulness and never-failing promises? As we close, I'd like to read a prayer. It's really a song that many of you know uh, called, Worthy is the Lamb. But I'd like to read it. And if you want to, in your hearts, uh, silently sing that, that's fine. Uh, But bow your heads with me as we pray. Thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you for the price you paid. Bearing all my sin and shame, in love you came and gave amazing grace. Thank you for this love, Lord. Thank you for the nail-pierced hands. Washed me in your cleansing flow. Now all I know, your forgiveness and embrace. Worthy is the Lamb, seated on the throne. Crown you now with many crowns. You reign victorious. High and lifted up, Jesus, Son of God, the darling of heaven, crucified. Worthy is the Lamb. Amen.